You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. And now, a message from Cyberbit. Mastering cybersecurity is like mastering a sport. You build muscle memory through rigorous practice. Then you train as a team to foster cohesion while operating under pressure. Like athletes, cybersecurity professionals thrive on hands-on simulation. But traditional courses, certifications, and open-source labs won't build you a winning team. You need Cyberbit. Cyberbit offers a hyper-realistic simulation environment for your SOC, IR, and C-suite to refine your skills. All using the market-leading SIMs, EDRs, firewalls, and WAFs they use every day. Cyberbit is offering CyberWire listeners a free live-fire exercise. Sign up your team now at cyberbit.com slash cyberwire. Facebook's troubles get worse. More people's data were scraped. Deleted videos were archived by Facebook. And so on. AppThority finds a more general problem with ad-supported apps. They're all hungry for data. Sino-American trade disputes are thought likely to find expression in cyber espionage. China's more interested in confidential financials than in IP. Russia and the West remain at loggerheads. One tip from Sweden on countering Moscow's info-ops. Don't get caught dancing in yellow rain boots. From the CyberWire studios at Data Tribe, I'm Dave Bittner with your CyberWire summary for Wednesday, April 5th, 2018. Facebook's bad patch became yesterday even more horrible, if that can be imagined. The company acknowledged that after further review, it thinks it may have exposed 87 million users to Cambridge Analytica's data scraping. Worse yet, various apps over recent years appear to have scraped the data of about 2 billion users, as close to everybody as makes little difference. It's worth noting again, as people have observed since the data scandal began, that such scraping doesn't represent hacking or exploitation. Rather, it's unwelcomely creative use of a number of the platform's features and its users' disposition to grant too many permissions as they decline to pay attention to an unnecessarily complicated set of privacy and security settings. Facebook says it disabled one of the principal features various apps took advantage of to pull in user data. This was the search functionality that enabled users to look for people by entering their email address or phone number. They've also revoked the possibility of other third-party applications like the widely used social media management platform Edgar, posting to, for example, Facebook groups. There's also a lot more Facebook is saving in user archives than most users suspected. After the Cambridge Analytica matter broke, many Facebook users downloaded their Facebook data archive. Why would one do that, we ask parenthetically? Here's why. Many users did so because they were considering killing their accounts entirely and wanted to retain material they'd posted to the platform. Looking at the archive, people were surprised to find that Facebook had retained a lot of information they thought it shouldn't have, like deleted videos. And, in fact, every video you ever made on the platform, whether you ever posted it or not. This discovery has been embarrassing to Facebook, which blames it on a bug, an oversight, and says it will do better. The optics have been very bad indeed for Facebook. CEO Mark Zuckerberg can be expected to have an interesting time next Wednesday when he testifies before a U.S. House panel 
looking into data privacy issues. It's only fair to say that this sort of problem isn't confined to Facebook. Mobile security company AppThority studied iOS apps in corporate environments and found more than 24,000 advertising-supported apps are hiding their strong appetite for user data more or less in plain sight, cloaked in EULAs and complexities. As connected cars continue to be a larger part of our automotive fleet, eventually leading to self-driving cars and perhaps even driverless delivery vehicles, they've naturally drawn the attention of the insurance industry. Larry Cochran is CEO of a software-as-a-service company called Claymatic that helps companies automate insurance claims. He joins us with his thoughts on where automation and advanced technology are leading the insurance industry. Advanced driver-assisted systems include adaptive cruise controls where you know the, the automobile can determine whether uh, you need to slow down or the, the car can actually slow itself down as it's approaching traffic can do emergency braking, uh, you know, recognizing before the driver that the uh, brakes need to be applied and actually doing that. Cameras in, in the vehicles that uh, can, can notice when, when a driver is getting drowsy and actually uh, waking the driver up uh, or, if necessary, applying brakes. Uh, and then telematics, which uh, provides, um, you know, constant monitoring of the vehicle and situation. For instance, if you have the vehicle as an impact and being able to transmit that information to any any number of parties that can track that that information. So um, so with with uh, this first stage, the uh, the figures are that as much as a forty percent fewer accidents in the next few years will result because of ADOS. And so that's a it's potentially a very big uh, impact. The impact on the insurance industry, which which I'm a part of, it is um, a little bit harder to determine, you know, the potential financial impacts because with all of these new technologies also comes a lot of extra cost and therefore the repairs to vehicles with all of these technologies is, is uh, much more severe. What about the, the potential for shifting liability? In other words, if my car is making decisions... Uh, rather than me making decisions, does that open up the possibility that uh, liability could shift to the manufacturer for making a bad choice? Uh, absolutely, yes, and and that is going to be probably the biggest shift in the the landscape of uh, of insurance that uh, has probably happened since the invention of the automobile. Now, if one of these systems fails and a customer or consumer uh, has been, um, you know, uh, reasonably relying on that system, then uh, there, there's a good chance of exposure to the OEM, the manufacturer of the device, the vehicle. And so, therefore, there will be a uh, transformation of risk being transferred from the traditional personal lines insurance carrier to the OEMs. There's a lot of opportunity here, and most companies, uh, whether they're insurance companies or other companies involved in pr providing tools, they all should be looked at uh, in terms of redirecting high-volume routine tasks that have clear decision points and pathways over to automation and redirecting the personnel that are currently involved in doing these repetitive rote types of uh, tasks to employing them more and redirecting them more to, towards helping with the consumer or customer journey. And, and I think that's where the big opportunity is. 
That's Larry Cochran. He's the CEO at Claymatic. As the U.S. and China squabble over tariffs, with China complaining of protectionism and the U.S. charging China with aggressive IP theft and unfair trade practices, U.S. officials brace for a round of renewed Chinese cyber espionage. In the ongoing round of hacking, it's not so much intellectual property the Chinese operators are after as it is business and financial information on U.S. companies. Security firm FireEye reports that the cyber espionage is particularly directed at getting bid prices, contract details, and information relevant to mergers and acquisitions. Some observers note that this seems to represent a kind of formal compliance with the letter, if not the spirit, of the non-hacking agreement China concluded with the previous administration. We're unlikely to see this kind of activity abate any time in the near future. Russia's brassy attempt to have its charges of provocation by Novichok validated by the Organization for the Prohibition of Chemical Weapons, the OPCW, has failed, voted down 15 to 6, with 17 abstentions. Moscow has suggested that the attempt to kill former GRU officer Sergei Skripal and his daughter Yulia with a highly unusual and little-known binary nerve agent was actually a British provocation, or maybe an American provocation, or probably aided and abetted by the Czechs. All of these countries have denied, of course, any such involvement, and essentially no one believes the accusation, especially not the Russian organs. But Russia sought a resolution in The Hague from the OPCW that would pressure the British government to bring Russia into investigation of the attack as a full partner. It failed in this, and as we noted, really no one thinks anyone but Russian espionage services were involved. The list of countries voting with Russia is interesting. They're either subordinates to Russia or powers who have an independent interest in embarrassing the UK, lining up with Moscow's bid to demand the UK conduct a joint investigation of the Salisbury nerve agent attack, where China... Azerbaijan, Algeria, and Iran. We'd wager a month's pay they don't believe it either. British investigators say they've identified with high confidence the lab in Russia where the Novichok agent was produced. Since high confidence doesn't mean mathematical certainty, some of the few who actually appear to swallow the Russian line say they doubt the wet work was really Russian. Among them is UK Labour Party leader Jeremy Corbyn, We understand the itch to use any convenient stick to whack an opposing political party. Not that we approve necessarily, but at least we understand it, because we've seen the House Intelligence Committee. But this appears to argue an odd streak of Russophilia sitting beneath Mr. Corbyn's Lenin cap. Has no one told him Russia really hasn't been communist since Gorbachev dissolved the Central Committee in August of 1991? In any case, the UK and Russia are headed for a showdown at the UN. Russia categorically denies ever having produced the Novichok agent. So tensions remain high with strong expectations that they'll find expression in cyberspace. The US is said to be preparing sanctions against at least six Russian billionaire oligarchs with close ties to President Putin. Two of the targets are said by anonymous sources in the administration talking to Radio Free Europe, Radio Liberty, to be Alexei Miller, CEO of natural gas giant Gazprom, and Igor Sechin, CEO of the country's dominant and state-controlled oil company Rosneft. Sanctions could be announced as early as this afternoon or tomorrow. 
Outgoing U.S. National Security Advisor McMaster's valediction was an unusually direct and forceful condemnation of Russian behavior and a call to impose costs on that country's government. More significantly, Director of National Intelligence Coates yesterday said that the U.S. government was seriously considering a retaliatory cyber offensive against Russia. Previous policy statements had concentrated publicly on defensive measures. The principal offenses being mentioned in these discussions of possible retaliation are attempts to influence U.S. elections and cyber reconnaissance that amounts to battle space preparation of the U.S. power grid. So what can be done to counter Russian information operations? It's got an oddly paradoxical quality, simultaneously asserting, we didn't do it, you did, and, but look at what we can do. We'd call it dialectical, but then the Russians haven't been dialectical materialists since August 1991. Sweden actually has long experience with this, mostly deriving from its long-running attempts to keep Soviet and later Russian submarines out of its Baltic territorial waters. Whenever they caught one, Russian authorities would piously deny it, calling the whole business either fabricated for purposes of provocation or made up by mentally disturbed figures who happened to hold Swedish office. Former Swedish Defense Chief Retired General Sverker Göransson advises not answering the disinformation directly, but rather presenting evidence of your own claims. He also advises having more than one official present your case. He commented to Defense One, quote, Russian media found a video snippet of me in yellow rain boots dancing to an ABBA song that they showed over and over. Their message to the Swedish public was, the person in charge of your country is a clown whom you can't trust. They were ridiculing those in charge at all levels, end quote. So, have more than one person talking, and stay away from the yellow boots. Every day, your IAM tech debt grows. Your multi-generational services struggle to work together. Building an identity fabric can fix this. It makes all your identity tooling stronger and allows you to connect any app to any service you want to use. With zero coding, zero maintenance, and zero app downtime. Strata's identity orchestration platform separates the identity logic from your applications, so you can optimize existing IAM tools and manage them in a single control plane. Now, every vendor, standard, and architecture work together. In short, building your identity fabric means you can secure your non-standard apps, keep your complex access policies, retire outdated IDPs, and modernize in record time. So build your fabric with Strata Identity and get rid of tech debt for good. Visit strata.io slash cyberwire, share your identity priorities, and receive a pair of AirPods Pro. Offer valid for organizations over 5,000 employees. Connect today at strata.io slash cyberwire. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business.
And joining me once again is Joe Kerrigan. He's from the Johns Hopkins University Information Security Institute. Joe, welcome back. Thanks, Dave. So I saw an interesting article come by on Ars Technica, and this was about uh, the New York State Public Service Commission. Those are the people who run the power companies in New York. Right. They have decided that they can charge Bitcoin mining companies more for electricity than other folks. So the commission has, has said it's okay for power companies to, Correct. to charge more. Yes. Yes. Interesting. It is interesting. Um, this is... Not uncommon in in the power world. They will charge industrial users of power more money for electricity during the day. In fact, I remember a, a, a show I was watching on Discovery Channel about metal recyclers who ran an arc furnace, which uses an ungodly amount of power, but mm-hmm. they would work solely at night because that's when the power company would cut them a break on their rates. Right, right. So off-peak time, you get the power for cheaper. One of the interesting things I, I in this article was that uh, evidently, in New York, a lot of the electricity is hydroelectric. Right. And so the communities look at this hydroelectric power as a local limited resource. A- and it is a limited resource. So when you exceed your hydroelectric capacity, you have to bring in You have to go capacity. out and buy power from the, other, from the rest of the grid. Right. So Presumably these, at a much higher cost. And that's why electricity is cheap, re- comparatively cheap in these areas. So these Bitcoin folks look all over the nation and decide, well, where's it cheap? Where's electricity cheap? Right. They and go they, to New York where it's cheap, and now they're chewing up all the hydroelectric power. Everybody ends up paying more for electricity. Right, because they have to buy more power. So they're essentially subsidizing. The people of the area are subsidizing these, uh, these Bitcoin miners. So it, it's not an uncommon practice to charge people more money for, for their electrical usage, uh, particularly if they're using more. I don't know how you're going to determine that organization A is a Bitcoin miner and organization B is not a Bitcoin miner. Mm-hmm. Or if somebody's mining Bitcoin personally, you know, without without having a, a large amount, are you going to charge them more too? It it seems like it's a very convoluted situation. Maybe they just go with how much you use and charge you based charge you more based on how much you use. Yeah, it was another interesting point in this article was that uh, one of the, one of their determining factors was that they said the cryptocurrency mining results in few local jobs, oh, almost no local jobs. Yeah, it's uh, I mean because it's all automated. Right, right. So there's not a really a public good in the use of this local resource. Again, the hydroelectric power. Uh, another interesting thing they pointed out is uh, a precedent. They say in Boulder, Colorado, marijuana growers are charged an extra about two cents per kilowatt hour right. because of all the power they use for the grow lights they, and yeah. ventilation systems and air conditioners and so on. And again, we're seeing this. This is There's a lot, a lot of precedents for this. This is, this is not uncommon for, for certain industries to be charged more for power because they're big users of power. Yeah, all right. Interesting stuff. You know, it's using uh, the, the, the free market at work to, uh, to incentivize people to either come or go away. Right. <laughs> all right. Joe Kerrigan, thanks for joining us. It's my pleasure. Are lengthy security reviews pulling attention away from your security program? With the largest network of trust centers, Vanta can help you streamline security reviews to win customer trust, save time, and close deals fast. Proactively demonstrate security by showcasing key resources like your SOC 2 or ISO 27001 and provide real-time evidence for passing controls. And when a security questionnaire is required, Vanta takes the first pass for you. Visit vanta.com slash cyber to take a self-serve tour. That's vanta.com slash cyber.
And that's the Cyberwire. For links to all of today's stories, check out our daily briefing at thecyberwire.com. And for professionals and cybersecurity leaders who want to stay abreast of this rapidly evolving field, sign up for Cyberwire Pro. It'll save you time and keep you informed. Listen for us on your Alexa smart speaker, too. The Cyberwire podcast is proudly produced in Maryland out of the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our amazing Cyberwire team is Elliot Peltzman, Peru Prakash, Stefan Vaziri, Kelsey Bond, Tim Nodar, Joe Kerrigan, Carol Terrio, Ben Yellen, Nick Vilecki, Gina Johnson, Bennett Moe, Chris Russell, John Petrick, Jennifer Iben, Rick Howard, Peter Kilpie, and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. We'll see you back here tomorrow. And now, a word from our sponsor, Zscaler, the leader in cloud security. Cyber attackers are using AI in creative ways to compromise users and breach organizations. In a security landscape where you must fight AI with AI, the best AI protection comes from having the best data. Zscaler has extended its zero-trust architecture with powerful AI engines that are trained and tuned by 500 trillion daily signals. Learn more about Zscaler Zero Trust plus AI to prevent ransomware and AI attacks. Experience your world secured. Visit zscaler.com slash zero trust AI. 